We're going to turn in our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 14, and I'm going to read to you the first ten verses. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the droughts. Judah mourns, and her gates languish. They mourn for the land, and the cry of Jerusalem has gone up. Their nobles have sent their lads for water. They went to the cisterns and found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and covered their heads. Because the ground is parched, for there was no rain in the land. The plowmen were ashamed. They covered their heads. Yes, the deer also gave birth in the field, but left because there was no grass. And the wild donkeys stood in the desolate heights. They sniffed at the wind like jackals. Their eyes failed because there was no grass. O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do it for your namesake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. O hope of Israel is saviour in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land? And like a traveller who turns aside to tarry for a night. Why should you be like a man astonished? Like a mighty one who cannot save. Yet you, O Lord, are in our midst. And we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Thus saith the Lord to this people. Thus they have loved to wander. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore the Lord does not accept them. You remember their iniquity now and punish their sins and I'm sure the Lord had his blessing uh, to that portion of his truth you know and um, for the last two Sunday mornings we've been talking or taking on board the advice given to us in Jeremiah chapter 23 concerning the who it is that we should listen to remember we looked at some a number of tests and uh Every preacher that we listen to should be able to pass these tests and to show uh, the congregation that they have come from God. I've said a few times over this last fortnight that not everyone who comes with a word from the Lord actually has a word from the Lord. And therefore it behoves each and every one of us to discern between who speaks for God and who doesn't? You know, and the question that was thrown up is, who can we trust? Who can we give our ears to? Who can we allow into our minds and into our hearts? They were vital moments for us when we, we looked at that in the last fortnight or so. Not to be taken lightly. Not to be put down as a, another Sunday morning. Not to be put down as a, another decent sermon. But those principles that we've looked at are so important, especially at this time of history. You are written in the bulletin this morning about our jaunt to Sainsbury's yesterday morning. And um, to see so many of the, the shelves that were empty. And it's obvious that something has got into the mind. Of the population. You know, and there is uh, an awful lot of scaremongering yeah. 
uh, about and um, people are unable to discern what is true and what is myth and they follow anyone who has a suggestion and I believe that's the reason why shelves in Sainsbury's are empty of soap and toilet roll this morning is because people are listening to myth rather than to fact you know and that's that's sad and dreadful and dangerous on the the practical level of our living but it's even more sad and dangerous on the spiritual level because there are people within the confines of churches that give myth rather than fact that tell legend rather than the truth of God's word and so many people because they have failed to discern then they are going in the totally in the wrong direction and therefore um, it's important it's imperative upon us that we become like the children of Issachar we know what God is saying to us we can understand the, the signs of the times we know what to do because we have trained our hearts and trained our minds not just our hearts our minds to know who to listen to so that's what we dealt with uh, for the last two Sunday mornings and now I want us to skip back a little to chapter 14 you know because I have found the most lovely little phrase that des- deserves our attention for the next few moments it's a phrase that turns up in a prayer but when you examine the prayer and you examine this phrase it turns up in the midst of total devastation and desolation and desperation which of course I suppose that that's where prayer resides so when we are desperate when we are desolate uh, when we are in, in devastated then that's the time to call upon the name of the Lord and that's what we are seeing here it's a part of a prayer that God continually listens out for you know I believe that God's ear is always tuned to our hearts and to our minds and to our voices you know and he's waiting for the heartfelt prayer of his people and you know in verse 8 it says oh the hope of Israel his saviour in time of trouble and I think that's a, a fabulous sentence it's a wonderful sentiment it's a, it's a lovely phrase oh the hope of Israel his saviour in the midst of trouble you know the Bible tells us that there is only one saviour Isaiah tells us that so who is this saviour well this is Jesus he is the hope of Israel he is his saviour in times of trouble you know and that's we can sort of lift that off the page there lift it from the historic setting that it's in and we can bring it right here this morning and we can apply that to ourselves oh the hope of Emmanuel his saviour in times of trouble you know then we can narrow it down and say oh the hope of Terence Gregory his saviour in the time of trouble this is Jesus you know, he, he's everywhere he gets everywhere and I'm so grateful for that 
You know, when you read this passage, you get the feeling that Judah is in a total mess. They are suffering. When you think about our situation now, they are panicking. They are losing the battle. You know, and once again, we have a little clue as to why this is taking place. You want know, the first verse of our reading this morning will give us the clue as to why Jerusalem, Jerusalem and Judah are in the state that they're in. Listen to what it says. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the droughts. Them dreaded droughts. The famines. Of course we know because we've gone through this before in studies that we've done that we know what's going on here by the subject matter of the Lord's word the word drought it's got to trigger a little clue in our minds because drought signifies the judgment of God upon his people no droughts in Judah at this time were not random events caused by climate change or the shifting of the jet stream or the year of El Nino. You know, that, that's what we to blame today for droughts. And yes, we have, uh, we have uh, scientific proof to tell us that, supposedly. But you know, that's not what happens here. When a drought took place in the Old Testament in Jerusalem and in Israel altogether, it wasn't something to do with the weather. This was definite judgment from God. A drought in Israel at this time was a definite judgment from God. He had warned them that if they turned to other gods, then he would withhold the blessings of abundant rain. And we find the principle repeated throughout the whole of the Old Testament. From Deuteronomy chapter 11 onwards, we see that when you talk of a famine in Israel, it's always because they have turned their back on God. They have gone after other gods. We see it with the story of Elijah. No, they were following Baal. We see it in the story of Ruth. They had backslidden. And no, they had to move down to Moab. There's so many. We see it in Joel. Chapter 2. Where the, the, the judgment of God came upon a nation. So Judah here, when we look at this story, are backslidden. And the cry of Jerusalem has gone out. Gone up. You know, and I was thinking, how easy it is to lose sight of God, especially when He is abundantly blessing you. That's the time you will lose sight of God. When He, will, when he is abundantly blessing you. You know, when the children of Israel went into the land, they had everything and more. Everything and more. I will bless you. With an abundance of rain. I've taken you to a land that is flowing with milk and honey. I will drive out before you the enemy. Everywhere you place your foot will be yours. Because I have promised it. I will be your God. You will be my people. Can you imagine when they went in there? And you know everything was theirs. You know, they reaped crops that they hadn't planted. They picked grapes that they hadn't sowed. Because God is so abundant in the blessings that he gives to us. But then, what happens is you become over-familiar. 
You know, when you've got nothing to concern yourself with, you look for things to take your mind. You know, and it's then that we start to take Him for granted. And we fail to acknowledge Him. And we fail to thank Him for His bountiful blessings. You know, and I suppose that for God it's almost an occupational hazard. Because He gives and gives and gives again. And because He does that, then He loses His usefulness to His people. You know, we see it all through the Old Testament. Especially if he was to read the book of Judges. Where God blesses his people in abundance. And as soon as they have the abundance, they forget him. They forget him. They turn their backs on him. And they go looking for other pleasures and other highs and you know, other adrenaline fixes. They go away from him. No, because they've got everything. God has given them everything. So he becomes useless. Or his usefulness is a thing of the past. No, we can see it in our own nation. Can you remember 75 years ago, this nation fell to its knees in prayer, asking God to save us from the Nazis. Oh yes, we were a, we were a nation at prayer. We filled our churches and we kneeled on the floor and we cried upon God. And what did God do? He saved us from the Nazis. So what do we do? We empty the churches and we stand up in stiffness and arrogance and we say, we don't need you anymore. Your usefulness is a thing of the past. And we've got no use for you now. You want know, today it's getting worse and worse as we as men and women are um, sort of actively trying to program Christianity out of our society whereas 75 years ago we cried and cried and cried for him to come and help perhaps we can see it in ourselves isn't that awful that God blesses us so much there comes a point in our life when he loses his usefulness to us we become over familiar and we think well we got it all now we don't need God. We don't need to wait on God. We don't need to come before Him with thanksgiving and praise. We don't need to humble ourselves before Him anymore because we got two cars in the drive. My mortgage is paid. You know, I got four holidays booked this year. And I go out for a meal three times a week. You know what? I don't need God no more. I've got everything that I want. And everything that I know when we need Him, we cry out. When we are dependent, we acknowledge Him. When we are helpless, we are attentive. But when things are running smoothly, we forget. When we're up to the mark, we overlook. When we prosper, we ignore Him. You know, and that's where Judah had slipped to here in this passage. And now God was waking them up. God was tapping them on the shoulder. God was reminding them of His promises. As well as seeking to draw them back. You know, we know to me that the chastisements of God upon his people Israel were for repentance and restoration rather than destruction. He loved his people. He, you know, he referred to it as his son. He called my son out of Egypt. You know, I have, you know and then he, he talked a bit of his, his daughter who was uh, adopted into the family. He loves Judah. You know, and he wants Judah to prosper. He doesn't want them to go after other gods. And therefore, all what he's doing here is to restore rather than to 
destroy and God is reminding them and that's why I'm, I was drawn to this lovely statement O hope O the hope of Israel his saviour in time of trouble in fact the whole of the three verses that surround that verse are significant you know the first thing I want us to be aware of this morning is that Judah is doomed if the righteous keep quiet Judah is doomed if the righteous keep quiet you know this is obviously Jeremiah our prayer here he is the one who is interceding on behalf of his beloved people not only is he the spokesman into their situation God's voice into uh, this situation he is also the prayer he is the one who intercedes he is the one who stands in the gap no but then another thing about Jeremiah is that he is the spectator he's the spectator and what he sees is abominable you know when he sees what he what he sees is a tribe devastated by the ravages of sin and its consequences you know but rather than acquiescing rather than sort of leaving them to the deserved lot because sometimes we feel like that you know when we look out on our society and we see the the sin and the the, um, the violence and the immorality we think well that's their lot you know, why, why should I be bothered with that? You know, and Jeremiah could have said the same thing. He could have said, well, it's the, it's the way you've chosen. You know, you brought it on yourself. Tough on you. That's what he could have said. But you see, rather than leaving them to their deserved lot, and even though Jeremiah wasn't really a part of this backsliding, he was a spectator to it, yet it is he who repents before God. It is he who repents before God. It is he who cries out in shame before their great creator. You know, Isaiah 62 begins with these words. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. You see, Judah had no thought of God. They turned their backs on him. But Jeremiah, Jeremiah kept God's thoughts concentrated on them. Isn't that amazing? That this nation or this tribe, it's Judah and Benjamin, they had turned their back on God and they didn't give God a single thought. But Jeremiah was there and he was continually drawing God's attention to Judah. Even though they had forgot about him. Jeremiah was determined that God wouldn't forget about them. And that's what we are seeing here. He continually concentrates God's thoughts on them. You know, and this is our lot this morning. As God's people. You know, he is looking for those who will take responsibility for our community. Yes, and you know, and uh, it doesn't seem fair sometimes. This Christian mark doesn't seem fair at all. You know, they, they you know they are doing what they want and they, they get on with things and they you know they do they doing better than I am. And yet God wants me to stand in the gap for them. Ezekiel chapter twenty two says, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf 
of the land that I should not destroy it you know the sad thing in, in Ezekiel it says but I found none you know and of course we can easily cast our minds back to Abraham as he faithfully intercedes on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah when he goes from 50 if you remember Lord what if there's 50 righteous people in the city would you destroy it and God says no for 50 I want and then he goes slowly and you can imagine him getting quieter and more embarrassed as he goes down 40 30 20 and he goes down to 10 Lord what if there's 10 righteous people would you destroy the city you know and God says no for ten righteous people, I wouldn't. But what is what is Abram doing? He's interceding on behalf of Sodom. You know, and it is he who stopped. God didn't stop. He you know, stopped at ten. He was too embarrassed to go down any lower because he knew that there was only one. You know, and he was uh, he was teetering on the edge of of righteousness. You know, and uh, wouldn't it not be awful if no one could be found to cry out for this valley? of ours the Rhonda Valley the Forgotten Valley the valley that has been raped of all its assets and now becomes a burden to society and yet there are 80,000 people here who need to know the Lord wouldn't it be awful if no one could be found to cry out on behalf of this valley of ours yes but we could say well we are not part of the problem they've turned their backs upon God but we come here on a Sunday morning every week to worship God and God says you're right you may not be part of the problem but you have to be part of the answer to the problem there's no one else to cry out to me on their behalf this is your responsibility and this is your privilege so the first thing that we can see from this part of the scripture is that Judah is doomed if the righteous stay quiet and Britain well let's bring it down to the Rhonda is doomed if the righteous stay quiet secondly the second thing I want us to be aware of is that Judah has but one hope of salvation one hope you know, armies, strength, power, wisdom, learning, wealth, all great things in our bid to survive. Now I suppose that we would put them at the top of the list if we're thinking of survival. You know, because we tend to trust in those things. You know, when things take a turn for the worst. That's what we look for. We look for strength and power and wisdom and learning. You know, and Judah had all these things. They had all these things in abundance. And yet no one could bring what they really wanted or really needed to survive. What did they need? They needed rain. You know, you can have all the blessings uh, of creation. If you haven't got rain, you were doomed. You had it. Because this is the vital asset to every one of us. And try as they might. To bring this calamity under control, they fail miserably, and frustrations are heaped upon frustrations. But why? Why are they so impotent? And the answer is because this is a spiritual problem. 
As I said in the beginning, it's not a physical problem. It's not a climate change problem. This is a spiritual problem. Therefore, God is our only hope, says Jeremiah. Or the hope of Israel. Or the hope. Not a hope, but the hope. His Savior in times of trouble. It's a spiritual problem. Remember of Psalm 46 starts, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Or we could translate it, an abundantly available help in trouble. Abundantly available help in trouble. You know that, that tells me that even in this situation that Judah finds himself or Jeremiah finds himself that God hasn't departed. He is a very present help in times of trouble. You know, not even when we turn from him does he go skulking away. He's always there. And he's always waiting for the smallest of murmurs to come from contrite hearts. You see, he's right there in the midst. But when we read this passage of scripture, it seems that he has become a stranger to them. In fact, the question is asked, why should you be like a stranger in the land? And like a traveller who turns aside to tarry for a night. That's what he's become in the Ronda Valley, a stranger. A stranger. He was thinking in bed last night or in the bath or whatever it was. This valley of ours that boasted a thousand-seater church on every street corner. Places of worship that this place was built because that place in there wasn't big enough to satisfy the crowds that would come in. And when you think that Nabor was just up the road, but Rinach was just up the road, the Wesleyans were across the road, the Baptists was just up the road, even the Mount were you. <laughs> well, they were you then. But can you see how he was the... Yes, I'm not going to say for a minute that everybody in the Ronda was saved and it was a, the perfect place to be. But there seemed to be some kind of relationship with God, even though it might have been a loose relationship. You know, it might not have been um, sort of the, the born-again type of relationship. There was a relationship with God but even that is gone now and he has become like a stranger in the land like someone who turns aside to tarry for a night who's going to come in and go and no one will know you know when I wrote that uh, my mind went to the garden of Caiaphas if you remember on that awful night when Peter being part of the crowd actually denied his Lord three times and yet just yards away from him was his Lord and he was being accused of all things but to Peter, he had become a stranger. A stranger. Oh, how awful it is when Christ isn't the one to whom we are all gravitating. Because he should be the center of our attraction. He should be the one that we adore. He should be the one that we love so much that we throng around him. You know, remember with the, with the woman with the issue of blood? She couldn't get near because of the throng. 
On the paralytic man who came down through the, through the roof, he couldn't get anywhere near, near Jesus because of the press. But you, he's like a stranger. Like someone looking for a bed for the night. No one had acknowledged him or invited him to stay with them. And how awful is that? But he is their only hope. The saviour of Israel. Their only hope. And as is Jesus. He's our only hope. Yes, we've tried everything else. You know, we used to sing a song years ago. and uh, It was very funny because there must have been about ten of us playing the guitar. And we'd all learned three chords. We did. David had a 12-string guitar at that time, I think. We were all in the front row, and uh, we were all playing exactly the same thing. And the song was, Try Jesus. Try Jesus. If you tried everything else, and everything else has failed, try Jesus. And we were doing all this. I can see us now all going up and down the board. If we tried everything... And everything has changed, failed, try Jesus. And that's what we've done. We've done that. We've tried everything else. You know, and even as Christians, we tend to give other things a try. But what we need more than anything else is for God's people to call upon His name. Because He is our only hope. It's a spiritual battle that we're in. And if we're going to win it, we need God. No, we don't need stuff. We don't need provisions. We don't need resources. What we need is God more than anything else today. We need God because He is our one hope. And that brings me to my last thought. And that is these people did not deserve God to give them any help. Jeremiah knew this. You know, and deep down we know it. We know it that no one in this society doesn't deserve God. Done nothing to deserve God. We did nothing to deserve God. You know, and Jeremiah's prayer, if you notice, starts with these words. Lord, do it for your name's sake. Do it for your name's sake. So he goes on and says, Our backslidings are many. And we have sinned against you. You and the question we could ask is, can we claim God's help? Can we demand that he come, come uh, to us and come up with the goods? And the answer is no. We cannot claim God's help. Can we obligate him to forgive us? Can we obligate him to restore our fortunes? No. Because we have forfeited that right. We have turned our backs upon him. He didn't move away. We did. And therefore we have no claim on him at all. And so, if God is going to move, if God is going to bring us from this place, then it is because of his name. It's because of his grace. You see, God's name is so important to him. Alongside his name runs his reputation. Alongside his name runs his will and desire. Alongside his name runs his love. Alongside his name runs his justice. You know, and all these things and more have to be satisfied. And do you know, you and I can satisfy nothing 
We have no capacity to satisfy any of the things that are important to God. We are bereft, impotent, of any idea or um, circumstance that we can satisfy God in any way. And therefore we've got no claim upon Him. You know, we talked on Thursday night. It is only Christ who satisfies the righteous demands of God's name. Only He can come and uphold God's reputation. Only He can come and fulfill God's precious will. Only He can come and display God's everlasting love. And only He can come and execute God's righteous judgment. You know, it is through Christ and Christ alone that God could ever deal with us in forgiveness and reconciliation. And that's why the verse says, Oh, the hope of Israel is saviour in times of trouble. Now and again we could insert the word the Rhonda there. Oh, the hope of the Rhonda is saviour in times of trouble. Because basically Jesus Christ is the only hope for this valley that we belong to. It has no other hope. There is no other recourse that you and I could go to. It's only Christ. He is the answer to our problem. We could easily insert our own name there. Oh, the hope of Terence Gregory is saviour in times of trouble. Because basically, Jesus Christ is the only hope for me, for you, and indeed for the whole world. Do any of us deserve it? Can we demand it? Is it a claim? Is it a right? There's so many things that are our right today. You know, I'm getting a bit cheesed off with people saying, it's my right to do this, it's my right to do that. It's my body and it's my right. You know, and we know all the things that are going on. There's so many rights. But let me tell you this, you've got no rights as far as God is concerned. Everything we get from God is by His grace and His glorious mercy. You know, and um, we don't deserve it. Does any of us deserve it? Of course we don't. But God's grace is absolutely amazing. So let's just think of what I've said this morning. First, we need to be aware that Judah is doomed if the righteous keep quiet. And that's a challenge to you and to me. Secondly, we have to be aware that Judah has but one hope one hope and that is Christ and him crucified there's no other hope for this valley and then lastly we need to be aware that these people we the world outside don't deserve anything from God but in grace he gives us everything that we need so let's call upon him Let's depend upon him and let's thank him for his glorious provision. For his name's sake. Amen.